time to stand up and speak before a church was when I was in junior high school. And of course, I grew up in Central America, and so it was in Spanish uh, that I had to do this. And I'm here to tell you that that moment has made no impression whatsoever in my life. I have, I have no memory much of the moment. I have no memory of what I said. It's just, it's just gone. It's a blank to me. But I did, however, the one thing that I do remember is I remember to do the most important thing when I spoke. See, this was 1970s <clears throat> something, Central America, and uh, back then the zip cover for the Bible was a very popular accessory. And anytime you were up before the church speaking or preaching or teaching when you were wrapping up, the universal sign was that you closed your Bible and zipped it up. And that's how people knew that you were, that you were winding down, that you were, that you were finishing I thought that this might be a good tradition to bring back to the future, right? I mean, first of all, it would let the praise team know when to come back up. That would be helpful. And, and secondly, it would give the church some glimpse of hope, right? It's almost done. I mean, we know the love of God is never-ending, but can you wind this thing down, right? Janet leans over and asks Larry, hey, uh, Larry, what does it mean when Randy looks at his watch and Larry says, absolutely nothing, dear. And then Larry and Janet leans back over to Larry and says, Honey, would you quit carving a notch in the table every time he says, in conclusion? Well, I, I preached my first English sermon when I was in high school in a little small country church in Fortran, Texas. Salut! And uh, I remember this message. Uh, my dad helped me with this message, helped me develop it. It was a message that I preached on, on Calvary, on the hill of Golgotha. That There were three crosses that stood on that hill, and each one of those crosses, it represented a different message. Now, the sermon was about five minutes long, and the people who heard it thought it was the best sermon they had ever heard in their lives. Now, did I mention it was five minutes long? Now, my dream would be to plan it so that I could preach as my last sermon, that first sermon that I preached. And I know that you dream that I could preach five-minute sermons again. I mean, even Uncle Ben can make rice in five minutes, right? I can't even get through my introduction in five minutes, you know. Come on, son. Last week, we looked at this moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit arrives as Jesus has promised. And the disciples find themselves gathered there in a room, and they're doing exactly what Jesus has instructed them to do. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to arrive, and, and they're not really sure what's going to happen next. All they know is that Jesus told them to wait in this room, that the Holy Spirit would arrive, and then the real work of ministry would begin. And so in this moment in Acts chapter 2, when the followers of Jesus are in that room, and the Holy Spirit comes and fulfills what Jesus says, and they are baptized or they are immersed in the Holy Spirit, 
they are driven out of that upper room and they are driven out into the marketplace, into a crowd of people. David Thurman makes a really interesting observation about this moment in the life of the early church. He says, if you'll notice, the real work of ministry doesn't start until the disciples are out of the room and in and among people. This is true for us as well today, that our real mission as a church, our real work as a church, our collaboration together doesn't happen so much when we're gathered here in this room as it does when we are out among those people who still have yet to call upon the Lord. The Holy Spirit moves us from this place into the world so that the real work can begin. And this is a fantastic setting. It's the time, it's the place, it's the context for Peter's first sermon. No one, not even me, remembers my first sermon But we sure do remember this moment in time when Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, stands up and begins to speak. He begins to talk. In verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And I want you to notice a few things about his sermon. What I want to do today is I want to look at, 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 let's describe it this way. I want to look at the container today. And then next week, I want to dive in a little deeper and look more closely at the content within the container. But even as we just start this week and we look at the container of this sermon, we're going to see three things. The first thing we're going to see is what the gospel is. The second thing we're going to see is what the gospel does. And the third thing we're going to see is who the gospel is for. We actually find this as we look at the container of of Peter standing up and speaking. We find out what the gospel is, what the gospel does, and and who the gospel is for. Let's pray. Father, I pray even now in this moment because we know that you are here. We know that your spirit is here, that you move in our hearts as we move in your word. And that you bring us into conviction to follow you more closely, to give our lives to you completely. We pray through Christ. Amen. Well, let's look at this first thing because really it is the foundation of everything that the early followers do as a church and everything that we should be doing as a church as well. When you look at Acts chapter 2, when Peter begins to speak, when he stands up to speak and he, he quotes from the prophet Joel and he begins to get into his message, what Peter is telling us first and foremost is he's telling us a truth, an important truth about the gospel. He's saying this is what the gospel is. This is so important for us today in many respects to undo some of the programming and the messages that we've received in our life. The gospel is not about something that we do. On the other hand, the gospel is something that has been done for us. The gospel message is first and foremost what God has done for us through Jesus Christ for salvation. This is what the gospel is. And if you notice the early church, they really had one sermon. They had one sermon. Over and over and over, their message was telling others about the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a fancy word for it. It's a Greek word, and it's come to be known as the kerygma of the church, the kerygma of the church. In other words, this was their core message. This was their central teaching. They never strayed very far when they were proclaiming in the book of Acts, when they were proclaiming the truth of Jesus. They were speaking about Jesus, a man who came to this earth. Oh, wait, we have it on our wall. This is the kerygma of the early church. This is the core of their message, that Jesus comes to earth, that he was delivered over, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that on the third day, by the power of God, God raised him from the dead. And the early church camped in that message because they knew that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would one day bring about their resurrection from the dead. And so they have no other message but this. This is their core teaching. This is the central, this is their curriculum. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is salvation through Jesus Christ. Not because what we have done, but what he has done for us. It is an appeal to God. When, when Peter quotes that passage from the, from the book of Joel, which we're going to hear this line in just a second. When he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that word call is an appeal. It's an appeal. So, so first and foremost, we are appealing to God. It's the same language, it's the same idea that Peter will come around and use when he talks about baptism. That it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience or a pure conscience. And so this is the message that the early church is presenting. This is the message that they needed everyone to hear, that they wanted everyone, that the Holy Spirit was pushing and moving and driving for them to hear. And so now let's listen as Tammy reads to us this most important line from this sermon of Peter. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Acts 2, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. When Peter stands up and gives this message, in fact, when you look at the gospel, of, when you look at Acts, you see that, that Peter is repeating this message, this central truth over and over again. And even when the Apostle Paul comes on the scene, this is his message as well. In fact, maybe you're familiar with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the gospel by which we stand, the gospel by which we are saved. It's that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that Christ was buried according to the Scripture, and that Christ was raised to life according to the Scripture. Paul is saying, listen, we have no other message than this. The gospel is the good news of what has been done for us by God through Jesus Christ, not what we can do for ourselves. Do you see how good this is? 
Because if we can grab onto that first aspect of the gospel, it removes all pride, it removes all boasting, it removes all self-exaltation. We didn't do it ourselves. It's been done for us. But the gospel is also a message of our worth to God, the beauty of of belonging to Him, the extravagant, costly grace. And you see how, how wonderful this is? Because this removes despair from our lives. It removes fear from our lives. It removes self-loathing. I mean, this gives us joy, and it gives us hope, and it gives us assurance. It gives us meaning and worth that God loves us so extravagantly. We love the one who loves us. We delight in the one who delights in us. We see the beauty of the one who finds us beautiful. This is why the gospel message is so important as the centering of our life, as the kerygma of our church, as the core of not just our witness or our testimony as a church, but the core of our message. Boy, my heart is so heavy when I hear messages that are pushed and promoted in pulpits and religious circles today. My heart is so burdened when I hear sermons that are pushing or promoting a political agenda. My heart is so overwhelmed when I hear people pronouncing condemnation on people who are loved by God. How did we drift so far? How did we stray so far to to those who are loved by God that we could actually stand up and condemn people who are loved by God? We have strayed so far from the message that God has for us through Jesus Christ of what He has done for us. We we are not the gatekeepers of grace and salvation. We are not. The gospel message of salvation in and through Jesus Christ is the only message we have. It's the only message we should push. It's the only message we should promote. And the further we get away from that message, the less good we are the less relevant we are to a world that is lost and the world that is dying. Peter's sermon teaches us first and foremost that the gospel is about what God has done for us. A message we respond to. Now, the second thing is we learn about the gospel is what the gospel does. This is one of the most wonderful byproducts of the gospel is that it changes people. If you can center your heart on what has been done for you in Christ Jesus, this changes you. And the best example that we have of this change, of this transformation, is the person who is standing up and speaking these words. I mean, the best example of transformation that we can see right now in this passage is Peter himself as he stands up and speaks these words. It's remarkable if you read through the Gospels and pay attention to every time that Peter speaks. Has anybody ever done this? Okay, so I I did this this past week. I just sat down, I, I read through, and I just made notes every time Peter says something. It's fascinating. It really is. 
you see a transformation in his life just by the recorded word. Now, it's even more, I love doing things like this, mainly because I'm a nerd, but secondly, because it causes me to, to focus differently when I'm reading Scripture. It causes, a, it engages a different part of my brain when I, when I read through the Gospels like this, looking for something in particular. And then when I start to notice the way Jesus responds to Peter, that's fascinating in and of itself. So uh, this is loose, loose in, in 23 or so places in the Gospels. Peter speaks approximately 220 words. That's about how much we have recorded of him speaking. And so he, it's, a, it's a good, pretty good scale too. Like he says things like, uh, explain the parable to us. He says, did you mean this parable for us or for somebody else? He says stuff like, Okay, how many times do I really have to forgive my brother? I mean, this is Peter. You, you, you see this development. You see this moment where he comes up to Jesus and he literally says, we have left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? I mean, this is where Peter starts. And now don't get me wrong. He has some great moments. Once, Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in another moment, one of his best moments, he says, Lord, I am ready to die for you. But then the narrative shifts, and there's some very confusing things. I mean, Peter, Peter goes through some turmoil, right? There's one scene in particular where in the course of however long it takes, he says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? And then he says, you will never wash my feet. And then he says, wash my feet, my hands, my head as well. Make up your mind, Peter. And so you see this progression in Peter as he begins to speak and as he speaks and he speaks. But listen, his heart is soft. And we see the Holy Spirit working in his life because this is what the Holy Spirit does for anyone who believes. Because we, like Peter, are always in a journey of transformation. We never arrive. We never get there. It's a journey in progress of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, transforming us. So we see these moments of pain where Peter says, I don't know him. I'm not with him. But then we see moments of redemption when Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. And he follows it up and says, Lord, you know everything. You know what Peter's saying here? He's saying, Lord, you've seen me at my worst. You've heard me at my worst. You've seen me when I'm trying to to be braggadocious. You've seen me when I'm trying to be the leader of the pack. You've seen my hurt. You've seen my pain. You've seen me deny you. So you, more than anyone else, know this fact is true. I love you. I love you. It's the Holy Spirit that puts us in this place in our lives. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that even allows us to say those words. To express even amongst the failure and the the darkness and those things that are so wrong in my life. That the Holy Spirit sees that blossom of faith, sees that seed blossom into faith and expressing our love. 
So 220 words. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and speaks 332 Holy Spirit-fueled words. And these 332 words that he speaks, it is a different person speaking. And Peter's message is all about Jesus. Peter is not even done with the introduction of his sermon before he tells us the entire point of the message. Uh, we got to listen to Garrison again. As he reads to us from Acts chapter 2, this is the point of Peter's sermon. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21 I'm thinking about mailing that out to us every week, right? Like, can you imagine how your day would start if your day starts with, like, it's a new app, the Garrison app, right? And every day your day starts with those words that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know why the 330-something words that Peter is speaking now are different than the, well, we know he said more than 220. That's just all we had. Do you know why, they're, why, why it's different? Because Peter has been with Jesus. And because he has been with Jesus, he's in the process of becoming like Jesus. And because he's in the process of becoming like Jesus, he wants to do what Jesus did. That's what he wants. That's what his heart does. When he says, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. He's saying, I just, I just want to live my life for you. So the gospel is a message of what has been done for us through, by God through Christ. The gospel is a message that shows us that it changes people. This is what it does. And then let's talk quickly who the gospel is for. Oh, by the way, the answer's on the screen. So let's just do a quick question here. Who is the gospel message for? Now, if you said everyone, you said the right word. Do you understand what that means? That the gospel is for everyone? There's something we miss sometimes in Acts chapter 2. There are at least 15 nations represented when Peter stands up to speak. At least 15. And they all speak a different language. They're all from a different place. And this is not counting the people who already live in Jerusalem that are from a different place and speak a different language. And when the disciples of Jesus are immersed in the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak. The miracle in this moment is the, not the gift of tongues, it's the gift of language. They're speaking about Christ in a way that people from every corner of the earth can understand. This is such an important moment for us that the Holy Spirit is working to communicate the truth of salvation through Jesus to every language that is represented. 
So I don't want to belabor this point just simply to say the gospel is a message of good news for all people, not just our people. Not just people who look like us, who talk like us, who live next to us. The gospel is a message of good news for people, for everyone of all the world. We have no useful message if it's not anchored or centered in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And and there's a lot of nuance here in this, but essentially this is what it means among everything else that it means. That in some form, shape, or fashion, you and I, all of us, We have chosen a particular form of rebellion, a particular form of rebellion, so that our heart replaces God at the center of our life. And for all of us, it's different, but we've all done it. So it doesn't matter what the individual sin is, this rebellion that we have all participated in, when when we we fall short of God, in, in other words, we just confirm the decisions that were made in the garden to disobey God. So the Bible says that we've all fallen short, that we've all sinned, and, and this is our rebellion against God. And, and there's, there's no way that we can undo the rebellion. So what we have to do is we have to look to Jesus Christ by faith. We have to come to Him in faith, and we have to say, Okay, Lord, I accept Jesus as the way to make everything right with you. I accept your terms. I accept what you say I need to do to be made right with you. And so this also has so much nuance, and among the many things that it means, it means that we break the dependency by having faith in Jesus. We break the dependency on the things which we can see. Because that's where my heart wants to go to. It wants to go to the things that I can see, the things that I can somewhat count on. And so listen, we often focus, and rightly so, on other people hearing the gospel message. That's part of our work as a church. It's part of our mission, and it's part of our ministry. But how much focus are we giving so that our own hearts hear and embrace this message? Here's how it works for me. Whenever the gospel, the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, whenever it's something that orbits around my life, sometimes I don't see it. Sometimes it's not right in my line of sight. And what happens is when the gravitational force of the cross weakens in these instances, my I'm right back in the garden as well, and I'm being tempted to to trust in something that will give me happiness or pleasure other than God himself. And so in these times in my life, what I have to do is I have to realize that the gospel truth of what God has done for me and that God changes me and the gospel is for me, that can't be a truth that orbits around my life. My life has to orbit around that truth. My life has to be a spinning world that's always looking at this truth 
that it's always before me, that it's ever before me, because that has to be what guides me. Oh, you want to know what the hardest part is? That the gospel of Christ, what God has done for me in Christ, has bearing on my life when I leave this place today. When I sit down at lunch, when I interact with my family, when I go to work, whatever it is that I do, that when I leave this room, when the Holy Spirit moves us out into this world, that this truth that Christ has given himself for me makes a difference in what I do. Our best testimony, our best witness, is when our lives bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does the gospel influence our lives in the way that social media does? Does the gospel influence our lives the way advertising does? Does the gospel influence our lives the way that we allow news network channels to influence our lives? I mean, the decisions that we make on a daily basis, moment by moment, are we taking those decisions to the cross of Jesus Christ and asking them to submit and surrender to Him? That's what a life looks like that is anchored that is anchored in the gravitational pull of the cross. Otherwise, I still find myself doing the right things for the wrong reason. Otherwise, I still find myself avoiding the right things for the wrong reason because I still think that somehow God's going to save me, that God will be delighted in me, that God will be pleased in me. And so I'm operating from this basis of fear and, and wanting and needing approval instead of operating from the basis of I have his approval, I have his acceptance, I have his delight. Lord, you, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter's first sermon is a message that was meant for us. A message about the gospel. A message of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's a message that God's gospel, that his power, it changes, it transforms lives. But it's also a message of good news for all people. So the closer we live to this truth, the more people hear and see in our lives the God that we love. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, I pray again because we know and we trust your Holy Spirit is here in this room, that you speak to us words of life, that you convict us in the areas where we need convicting, that you confirm your truth in our heart, not the truth that we create, and that you help us see the beauty of our Lord. You help us see the beauty of the one who gave everything for us. So when the Holy Spirit moves us from this place, we are entering this world to live for you. And we pray through Christ. Amen.